This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Gorgeous. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. My name is Danielle. And uh, I'm not giving you the finger, by the way. I'm, I'm just <laughs> Likely scratching <story>. my face. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We're doing a podcast about film. <laughs> um, how's it going this week? It's going all right. Like I remember to wear the I wore I wore deodorant for um, most of the week, which oh, is good, great for me. <laughs> are, so are you? Um, you don't wear deodorant sometimes. Ever since the pandemic started, it has gone. It was the first thing to go. It was the first thing to go. Where I was like, really? I'm, yeah, like I live by myself. I don't mind my own funk. Out of here. I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. I do like a natural deodorant, and I've been using each and every, and this is not an ad, um, but I've been using each and every, uh, or soap wallet. And I'll, you know, every couple of days, but I genuinely forget. Like, it's not part of my daily routine anymore. So I just, j- until I smell myself, I'm like, oh, I didn't do it today. Oh, well, it's almost five o'clock. <laughs> I can't do, I can't do the natural deodes. I just can't do it. I, I, I haven't even tried and I can't. I just, it, it's the thing that it's just going to be my thing. I can't That's all right. go natural. Also, by the way, I have to say, they really fucked up by letting us start this podcast during quarantine because I swear to God, every episode we get on here and be like, let's talk about our funk. Let's talk about <laughs> our asses. Let's talk about our underwear bras. You know, personal items. But you know what? In the age of quarantine, this is the only thing that we think about is our bodies, ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's the Funk and Dump podcast. And fucking dump. You're welcome to it. (laughs) I it took me like three days into the pandemic to just turn into Marjorie the trash heap from Fraggle Rock. (laughs) I'm not gonna deny it. That's how it goes down. Like, you're lucky I'm not feral. I'm practically <laughs> feral. I live alone. There's no one to check me. I could be writing on the walls with my own blood. Nobody would know. Yeah. Your neighbor, your closest neighbor is off traversing the world. Yeah. And it's just you and Carrot in there. And as long as, long as I feed him, he does not care at all. I don't think cats have that in them to be like, you stink, man. Like, get away from me. <laughs> Dogs are in me. Like, Sophie would definitely be like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my dog is actually really prissy, which is so funny. She has prissiness to her for sure. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Dogs love stinky stuff. I mean, they like, I swear to God, like, they love to roll around in weird shit. And at first I thought they were just doing it on purpose to piss me off because I'm just like, I'm not giving you a bath today. It's a nightmare because then it's like you get out of the bathtub and you're running around and you're trying to dry yourself off on all my fucking throw pillows. I'm like, we can't be doing this, but dogs like they like to, I guess, mask their smell. So they will like be like, did a bug die here? Cause 
If so, I'm going to put my entire back on top of it and just start wiggling around. And that is going to make it easier for the dog takeover. They're going to pick up little switchblades and be like, you're never going to smell me coming. Here I am, bitch. (laughs) Stop, stop. (laughs) Well, I wonder if we have any dog people listening to this podcast, because as I figured out, based on the last episode, wow, uh, the carrot love is through the roof. I love my cat people. Thank you guys for being so nice to my boy. Also, I hate the idea of there being... I hate the gang war of cat people versus dog people. I know. I love them both. I love them both, too. Even though I don't own a cat, I love cats. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll hang out with them. No probs. My parents have two cats. And these are, like, these big-ass Maine Coon cats that, like, look like foxes. They're humongous. One of them is grouchy and doesn't really like me, but the other one... The other one, that's my boy right yeah. there. And he's an old cat man. Aww. And I've known him since he was a little baby. So me and him have a history together. Yeah. So I'm a cat person too. Exactly. You have a dog. You could be a cat person and a dog person. But the only thing that has to get the fuck out of here is ocelots. Get out of here. <laughs> ocelots. That's the only one who's not invited to the party. What? What's up with an ocelot? For you, what's I've never I don't know this about you. It's not even like a personal like I've never been personally victimized by an ocelot. <laughs> I just feel like get the fuck out of here. Like what are you what are you doing? Like who are you killing? What animals are you? What what breeds are you destroying? You're not a pet, but you're also like not wild usually. Like I just don't get them. Okay, am I confusing? Is an ocelot a mountain lion? It's or is that of, a yeah, bobcat? Like both, but I think what? <laughs> Lauren, could you look up ocelots and drop a link? Yeah, we need some. We need a third party <laughs> for a visual. <laughs> I need to know if an ocelot is what I think it is. They're kind of like they're panther-like. I want to say, but they're like Amer- like you can find them in America, like a mountain lion. Because honestly, like we have bobcats in this neighborhood that I'm in right now. What? Um, <laughs> Wikipedia.org <laughs> ocelot. <laughs> so yeah, they're kind of like tigery and they're kind of like they're carnivorous. They just seem oh. like big asshole cats. Okay. These aren't these are not what I thought they were. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wild cat, but it's definitely it's bigger than a than a mountain or a bobcat, right? Yeah, and they have tiny eyes. They have really tiny eyes. And like they have, they have like a tiny cat head, but like a big cat body. Just yeah, they can just fuck off, you know? <laughs> That's the only one who's not invited to the party. That's it. Do they have ocelots in LA? God. You know somebody has a fucking ocelot in LA. Guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, you know somebody has an ocelot in Florida. I mean, it's oh, like for sure. Isn't that sort of that what's that show that the everybody Tiger was King. obsessed with? Tiger King. <laughs> Do I have that wrong? I watched the old, I only watched like the first episode <laughs> of that shit and was like, this is clearly, th- this is not for me. I need no. to back away from this. This is bad you know what I mean? news. But however, if they had an Ocelot King, I'd at least tune in for the whole series and want to know what's <laughs> going on. I don't know why I'm on Ocelots today, but they can fuck off. But also I would watch a TV show about them. That's where I am. <laughs> Total confusion. I get it. We don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. It's all right. But I appreciate you saying that you can be both a cat and a dog person because I think that people are both. <laughs> well, and you know, this is like something that really sticks in my craw about Internet memes and sort of the the socialization that we experience via Internet platforms. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that this like there's always invariably some kind of fucking like 
quiz or some kind of article that's like puts cat people versus dog people up against each other and to a larger extent introverts versus extroverts Mm -hmm. which is annoying as shit because i feel like there is no middle ground I lean slightly dog simply because I have one and I've only had one, but I don't hate cats. No. The thing about introverts versus extroverts is the kind of thing too, where you're like, I'm pretty much on the extroverted side. Obviously I think we know I'm loud as shit and I'm not afraid to be loud as shit, but like I have introverted tendencies. Like I don't fucking like people like, come on. Can I be loud and never want to leave my house? Cause that's who I am. I'm loud and I don't want to go to your party. <laughs> See, I don't mind going to the party, but I only want to stay for like 15 minutes. Yeah. Like, Yeah, that's that's the move. That's more the move. Like, I'm not hanging out all night. I'm going to make an entrance and leave. Yeah. what I, It's like I I don't mind going to meetings. I just don't want to go to unnecessary meetings. Exactly. Like, I, you know, if I go to if I go to a party, I want to stay for like a respectable 15, 20 minutes. I don't want to be there all night. I think we should do away with the false dichotomy that the internet pushes on us with cats and dogs and introvert extrovert and you're either cool or you're a fucking asshole that's the only dichotomy that exists but isn't that the same dichotomy if you think about it it's like cats introverts dogs mm-hmm. extroverts it's sort of like okay if you're a cat person right you're a certain type of way you don't want to go to the party you just want to s- sit at home and a dog person is out at a beer festival or something drinking like, with none their of those dogs. things are me like none of those things are me 100 percent of the time man like i fucking hate beer festivals i've never seen you at a beer garden a beer festival <laughs> and you're definitely not at either one pouring steins of booze down sophie's throat <laughs> like... you know it's so funny because i don't even drink that much anymore yeah. i haven't honestly it's been years since i've been like super drunk Same. and I'm also a secret. I kind of secretly have been a non-heavy drinker for many years where I've been like, I can hold a beer and maybe you think I'm chugging like 12 beers, but I only have one. And if I don't finish it, I pour it down the drain and then just leave. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't put any saran wrap on this. I'm not going to drink it. It's fine. Yeah, and I've all and I've been on in situations where I've been with like friends or I've been on like dates or something where somebody's like, "Dude, are you still on your first beer?" See, that's the kind of shit we don't need. We don't need this shit. Let me be on my first beer because guess what? One beer, I'm still awesome. And you're at 15 and you're not even there yet. So why don't you clean your own side of the street? Listen, this beer is 93 degrees in my hands right now. <laughs> Fuck off. Just le- stop counting. Leave it alone. <laughs> Also, this <laughs> hot beer is not doing it for me. I also I do feel like there is a point in life and I've reached it. I reached it a few years ago where being drunk or high does not feel as good to me as a solid day where I feel good and get my shit done. That's true. It feels so much better to me to not lose a day to a hangover. And that's why I don't drink that much anymore, because when I drink, I can go like I'll just shot, shot, shots. Like I'm just like I like to I'm a very social drinker for sure. 
like almost yeah. purely. So I don't see the need anymore because when I hang out with people at this point, it's not about that. We don't need to go. We all have our own homes and like no one has like you, we don't most of us don't have roommates anymore. And like like we all have places to be where we can just chill. And alcohol doesn't enhance that experience for me. Hangovers are that that I think was the first realization to where I was like, yeah, man, I can't like drink as much anymore mm-hmm. is that hangover went from an afternoon to like a three-day thing where I was right. basically like, yo, I feel like shit like many days after the event and I'm tired. I can't get my sleep back in order. This sucks. And then on top of that, I noticed, so not only when I would drink, would my hangover be worse just physically. But then I had this like whole weird emotional component to my hangover where I would start like crying and feeling sorry for myself. And I was just like, God damn, am I dehydrated? Why am I like (laughs) contemplating my fucking life? Like I'm sitting there like literally in front of the couch, like drinking fucking Pedialyte going, I did not get married and have kids. And is that a mistake? I mean, why did I have 15 fucking vodkas last night? What the fuck is wrong with me? Why am I, you know, and I just am like, no, you don't need the emotional tailspin. And I fully, I mean, it's, it's to me, I can't say I don't drink because I could one day. And I think when you say that to people, they think, oh, you'll, you never drink and you never will. That's not it. This is not like based on a program or an addiction or anything. It's purely a preference. And when I wake up, I have a lot to do. I have multiple jobs. I have family members that I take care of. Like, I have a lot of stuff to do. That's also why I go to bed early. Like, my real life is a waking nightmare. So just go to bed, (laughs) sleep it all. (laughs) But when you have that going on, like, you don't, it just doesn't feel good. It does. I feel like a much better version of myself when I can count on myself and when, you know, it kind of, you know, I can... I don't know. I just feel better about it. And I also this is something that took me way too long to figure out, because, again, I never had an addiction. I cannot drink because I am on antidepressants. I'm a depressed person. Mm -hmm. I can't drink and take Wellbutrin and feel okay. And I would much rather feel okay. I'd much rather be on my meds and going to therapy and feeling good. Like there's not a drink in the world that's worth me sacrificing that. And usually if I add alcohol to the mix, I'm the same way. I get there so quickly to this like really low place. And I'm I'm just always kind of, you know, I had to learn over the years, but I'm always monitoring like what I'm always monitoring my depression. Always. You know, like, is it coming back? Just, you know, it's part of my life. So, yeah. Well, that's You know, that's always a tough thing, too, is that like as you get older, start taking more medicine. And, you know, all that shit interacts. There's so many reasons why I shouldn't drink. Most of it is because I'm half Asian and I literally get bombed after like two or three drinks. Like, same as my mother. I am my mother's daughter. My mother has literally like two sips of wine and she's like, oh my God, I feel crazy. And I'm like, and it makes me fucking hot. It like makes me flushed. And I start feeling all like, I want to take all of these cardigans off. And... (laughs) You go, you go down to three cardigans when you're drunk. Damn, girl, that's yeah, deep. It's serious. That is it's serious. You're like Millie's on number three. But you know how it is. Like, cool. It's in my blood, baby. I can't drink like 
a 12 pack. I, you know, I'm just, it, it ain't for me. I just want to go out once with you and say, Millie's on number three and have someone say, drinks? No, cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> Around a round of cardigans for you guys? I'm buying. Oh my goodness Ugh. gracious. Would you, what's going on with you this week, aside from everything we just talked about? I'll tell you one thing, which is that, so speaking of my mother, you know, she's like, she comes to me yesterday or like the day before yesterday and was like, I, I just bought these vegetables and you need to go uh, onto the New York Times cooking app and figure out what to do with them. Right. And she hands me this bag of Brussels sprouts. I love fucking Brussels sprouts. I love to just roast them in a pan with some sweet potatoes and some like chicken sausage or something. Oh, I love it. Yeah. My dad hates them. And I even tried to make them because I basically looked up a recipe that had like it was honey and red wine vinegar. I mean, it's basically like I mean, you what I did. I googled Longhorn Steakhouse crispy Brussels sprouts (laughs) to see like what came up and it was a New York Times uh, app. Thing because you know, like I was like, you know how like you go to one of those like steakhouses and they have some kind of yes. like decadent. I mean, it's like the vegetables that they make have like two thousand calories. Oh, completely. They found a way to make vegetables unhealthy for sure. Exactly, but they're fucking delicious. Yeah. And I was like, yo, if if I'm gonna convince my dad to like this vegetable, I gotta go. You know, we gotta go like the decadent route. So I type into the app Brussels sprouts. Right. And nothing came up. And I was like, surely that's wrong. I mean, this is a food app and you don't have any Brussels sprouts recipes. Yeah. And then I realized that Brussels sprouts is how it's spelled. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes. I refuse. (laughs) So I've lived on this earth for over four decades and just realized that it's not Brussels sprouts, it's Brussels sprouts. Because the S's connect. Yes. Brussels sprouts. That's fucking crazy. That's nuts. I, I am not accepting this. I'm not accepting it. I'm not it. either. I, and, but here's what pisses me off is that I couldn't have been the first person to fuck this up. And you need to make your search functionality a little bit more... Nuance. <laughs> I did not know that it was. Okay. That is shocking. A fax just popped into the chat. More than three quarters, seventy-seven percent of our, of the population referred to it as Brussels. So yeah. I'm actually part of the majority here, for sure. And also, it's like here's the thing. I thought that we're we're near we're close to the the what is that event horizon or whatever when the computers take over <laughs> like they can't if they can't do brussels to brussels then i'm not worried about <laughs> it anymore i mean if you i swear to god it's like if you type in to google like favebook.com instead of facebook.com yeah. you usually get facebook i'm like you can't do that for brussels sprouts i mean make come on man the leap brussels make the leap it feels like one of those things to me that if the population thinks it should be a certain way, like maybe you can adapt to that certain way of doing things. Not that you have to change it, but just like adapt. Add the L, lose the S. Yes. Why is it plural then? Because I'm sort of like, it doesn't make no damn sense. Is it from Brussels? Right. I think they probably started there, maybe. Oh, my God. Like all good vegetables, they started in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They from, 
I'm sorry. We're we're getting all this. I feel like I'm a newscaster on, you know, reading like an up to date. Like we're, it's like a current news event. I'm figuring out Brussels sprouts right Millie, now. Millie has her finger on her headphone and she's like, this just in. everyone in this podcast working on this podcast right now is pissed off about this information so to summarize my feeling it's that like now i feel like is this why brussels sprouts is this why the visibility of this vegetable like think about how many missed opportunities this vegetable Mm -hmm. has had because people were not spelling it right didn't know it was plural I mean, maybe you're going through your recipe box with your glued on bags and, you know, the Ritz crackers and you're cruising through and you're like, I don't find Brussels sprouts because I spelled it Brussels sprouts like I thought it was. And also Brussels sprouts got a bad ass rep when we were growing up. I didn't even start eating them until I was in my mid 30s. They got such a bad rep. And I think it's because people didn't know how to pronounce what they were eating. Maybe let's go that far. Let's take it to that level. (laughs) If you can't pronounce it in the grocery store, how can you buy it and eat it? Listen, I'm so pro Brussels sprouts, however (laughs) you spell it, that if the Brussels sprouts board wants to come and do an ad on this podcast, I will read that shit. I will read it. Personal experience. You know, Brussels sprouts needs to hire the kale lobbyists. And get this shit popping. <laughs> Is there like a kombucha cappuccino oh slash Brussels sprouts invention that somebody can create? Can I get one of those matcha br- Brussels matches? Give them <laughs> Brussels matches. <laughs> Better visibility. I honestly think that. I, I was like, I'm stupid for not knowing no. this, right? Like, I, I was like, anybody, I, dumb? I don't think anybody knows that at all. I guarantee there are chefs that don't know that. Okay. Because I, I was feeling bad about myself. And then I was like, oh, it's one of those things that people talk about on the internet. Back to that old internet again about the Berenstein Bears. You know, right. what do they call that? It's like a phenomenon. The Mandela where, effect. Yes, exactly. We all thought it was something and it actually wasn't that at all. And where did it come from? My favorite ones of those are like, I thought that person was dead. <laughs> I'm like, that's so cruel and so funny. And that's how that's what it was named for, because people legitimately remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison. I did not remember that. I didn't either. Yeah, I didn't either. He was alive as fuck in the 90s because I remember everybody oh, talking about it. The the medallions, the whole night. All, but also Fruit of the Loom tag, underwear tag. Does it have a cornucopia or not in your memory? No, you're right. I thought it did. Whoa, really? That's a thing, too, huh? Mm hmm. I'm going to send you a link because I look it up every once in a while as a part of my Alzheimer's shit where I'm like, yeah. I don't want this. <laughs> and if I'm now remembering things that didn't happen, that is terrifying. <laughs> so can you edit now edit the Wikipedia article that says that we all thought it was Brussels sprouts and it's Brussels sprouts? Oh, it's going to be an all caps update on that <laughs> Wikipedia page. And then there will be a... Um, a notation and it's just going to point to the, the website for this podcast. And then there'll be another notation that just points to Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and me giving the finger. Are you uh, ready to fucking dive into this movie experience that we're about to have right now? 
I have genuinely never been more ready for anything <laughs> in my existence. Let's go. I'm doing some shoulder work. No one can see this, but I'm so excited. Well, we are we have come to the final week of our Black History Month month. <laughs> and uh, we are going out with a bang. Um, we, what I think is interesting about what we're about to do is that I think I said, I said something about this in the, in the first episode that we did about Bill Gunn, which is that we have literally drawn a line between somebody like Bill Gunn, sort of an obscure black artist who we felt didn't get his due. And people are just kind of really being able to access his work like in the past, you know, 10, 15 years to the topic of today's episode, which is almost the complete opposite of that. And I just think that that's very interesting. I'm proud um, of us. I'm proud of us. I'm proud. I am shocked at us. And I am thrilled that you came up with this as a theme. Because the minute you said it, I lost my mind. <laughs> okay. Tell them what our theme is. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can say this. You have so far not been able to say it without laughing. Don't look at me. I'm actually, let me turn your camera off because I will laugh in your face because this, this cracks me up. But the name of this episode is called The Brothers Wayans, A Critical Assessment of Aesthetic. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you did it. You did it. <laughs> Let's tell the people before I get into the history of this dynastic family. <laughs> what were you thinking when you're like, this is something I want to talk about? OK, I, I think that part of it is that there is something to be said for the movies that came out of this family. Some of them more than others, because certainly they have made important, interesting, you know, quote unquote, serious movies, especially as actors, not maybe as, you know, as directors, but especially as actors, maybe acting and other things. But I also feel like there's such a snobbery when it comes to the Wayans Brothers movies, especially when it comes to like the comedies mm -hmm. of the late 90s and early 2000s that were primarily parodies of other films. There's a set of snobbery amongst film people that are like, okay, that's bullshit. Like that's, those are like the dumbest movies of all time. And I'm not going to sit there and like tell you that Fran Lebowitz would stand for these films. I bet she fucking would. <laughs> She's cool. She would. But I also feel like it's time for a critical reappraisal, maybe, of these films. And there are, like I said, there are films that they are affiliated with, like Hollywood Shuffle and, and maybe mm -hmm. your movie that we're going to talk about today that have become great films that people will talk about on a film podcast. But then there are others that I don't know if people Ooh. would talk about on film podcast until now. Well, that's because they have made collectively over 30 movies. It's like 33, 34 movies, I think, at this this point. Um, and let me let, let's get into the, the, the brothers weigh ins as we do a critical assessment of aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm 100 percent putting on a T-shirt one day. <laughs> 
So the first generation of Wayans, okay, first generation has 10 kids, 10 yep. siblings. You've got Dwayne, Keenan, Deirdre, Damon, Kim, Elvira, Nadia, Devon, Sean, and Marlon. 10 in one family. They were raised in New York City. Uh, their father mar- managed a supermarket. Their mother was a homemaker and a social worker. Uh, they lived in the Chelsea area. And they were raised as Jehovah's Witnesses. 10 kids. I still can't get over it. And that is just the first generation. Your second generation includes Wayans like uh, Damon Wayans Jr., who's best known for Happy Endings and New Girl. He's an actor that's been on a lot of TV stuff and a few movies. Uh, Damien Dante Wayans, Craig Wayans. All told, there are about 435 Wayans currently working (laughs) in or around the L.A. area. (laughs) And here's the thing that fascinates me about that. The whole family, two faces. They only have two faces. You're either a Keenan or you're a Damon. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. genes are strong in either direction, but that is, you are one family. You only have two faces. You have 400 members. And it's like, pick your your warrior. How are you going out in this world? So they have so many movies. They are collectively, as a family, worth about $170 million. Wow. And Keenan Ivory Wayans is worth about 65 million of that. Sean is the least wealthy way in because he only has about 30 million dollars. Oh, oh, but, you know, he's he's a baby brother. He's got time. So this whole family just burst into films primarily because of Keenan and Dwayne. So Dwayne is a, is a film composer, but Keenan Ivory Wayans is and I can't just not say his whole name. Like I can't just I know say Keenan. If your name's Keenan Ivory Wayans, I'm saying the whole thing. He was a writer. He wrote on Hollywood Shuffle. Uh, and then he wrote the film that we're going to talk about today. He wrote and directed I'm Going to Get You, Sucker. Um, but he really kicked it off because it was after I'm Going to Get You, Sucker, is uh, when he started developing In Living Color, which was a TV show that I lived for as a child, yes. lived for Sunday nights. It was like Simpsons Living Color Night, right? Yep. And it was a sketch comedy show. And, you know, you got your your usual, uh, they usually kind of stuck with a crew, like, you know, David Allen Greer, Tommy Davidson. Um, but Keenan Ivory Wayans really went out and wrote, produced, and directed a ton of TV and a ton of films before Marlon was even, like, in high school. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, and that show launched, like, Jim Carrey yep. and Jennifer Lopez. And, I mean, it was like, I mean... I don't, you know, we, I know that not everybody that listens to this podcast is our age, but like for people of a certain age, that show was more important than Saturday Night Live. Completely. Like in a lot of ways. I mean, they was happening at the same time as Saturday Night Live, but there was something else there that like, I mean, at least for me and my yeah. friends, like we loved that shit. They were meaner and they were funnier and they went harder. Yes. Than SNL for a long time. Yeah. So I read something uh, where in 2020, somebody named Terrence J, who I guess is a host uh, or a comedian, um, Terrence J said that the Wayans family is only successful due to nepotism. And I was like, no shit, Sherlock. Like, there's 900 <laughs> of them. <laughs> like, of course it is. But this is what part of my questioning as, as we're doing this re- reimagining and re-envisioning of the Wayans family is why is building a family dynasty a problem when black people do it? Like, why is it so controversial that this family, in order to build their own generational wealth that was immediate, had an immediate impact 
on the next generation. How is it problematic? But the Barrymores and, you know, like we were talking about with the rats when we did uh, Graveyard Shift. Yeah, the like, Barrymores, the, the Houstons. The yeah. Houstons, like <laughs> the, the, rat, the rat family dynasty. Like, yes. Y'all let rats get a dynasty before you let the Wayans get a dynasty. And I think that's what we're talking about, that it's like, yeah, nepotism plays a big part of it because that was a tool of survival for them, not only in their lives and in their upbringing, but clearly in their work. And there is something to be said for like your siblings being able to make you laugh in a way that nobody can make you laugh. And I yes. think that that is a natural extension to me. It makes perfect sense that when you start writing films, you have your family in mind. Nobody makes me laugh harder than my brother on some about certain things. Um, I don't find it problematic that they went on to build this huge, momentous <laughs> and ongoing carnival of film and of media. And I think a lot of that, I think if they have criticism, I think it has a lot to do with sort of, like I said, going back to this idea that what is art? What is this high art? What, you know, what are we saving and protecting and touting and sort of like, what is the canon? And I would say comedy is always maligned when it comes Mm -hmm. to like, you know, high minded, highfalutin film people, broad comedies, especially like broad comedy is not artistic in the minds of like, you know, film people, you know, maybe the Academy and the Academy doesn't do a lot of comedy in terms of like when they give out awards. And there's something to that where basically like because they were successful, because they were making films that made millions and millions of dollars and kids lining up around the block to see scary movie, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like for some reason that's are they deserving of that success because they're commercially financially successful and they're not making quote unquote art for a lot of people? I completely agree because I also think it is a question of where do they fit in because they're making very black art. Yes. But it is not fit within the bounds of monolithic blackness. And that's where a lot of people, I think, have problems with them because they keep questioning, you know, are they successful because they're enforcing stereotypes or because they're demolishing stereotypes? And that's part of what I think is funny about the movie that that I picked today. I'm going to get you, sucker, because... What they're really doing is they they kind of earn their stripes making fun of exploitation films, which were already such a myopic view of blackness through the lens of whiteness. So they're not only making fun of the format, but they're also making fun of the function. Like they're forcing people to ask, who are these movies usually for? And what does it say about blackness versus what you think you know about blackness or what we know about blackness? (laughs) So it's a very interesting you know, again, an interesting dynamic to me at play because they know what they're doing. They're smart as fuck. And to be smart, to be to make and I keep going back to the money because I think that as we've gone through this month and talked about so many black creators who never got their due, it is truly impressive to me that they have been able to build what they've built. It's truly impressive. And they don't have to be auteurs and they don't have to be like the most special artistic flowers that ever existed. That they were able to do it is awesome to me. Yeah. It's awesome. So I think that it's worth asking these questions because they don't fit into most people's definition of art. And I'm not even going to get into the argument of whether they should or not, but I think exactly there's definitely something to be said for, you know, they instantly don't fit any mold because they're making black art that is not about respectability politics or monolithic blackness. I don't know. Like, I feel like it goes back to that Bill Gunn letter to the editor, you know, and how do you respond to movies that maybe aren't made for you and kind of the valuation 
of the Wayans brothers as unworthy of success because they don't because they kind of go out of pocket sometimes. But I do want to I think these movies that we've picked are very excellent ways at different ends of the spectrum to start answering some of these questions and thinking more deeply about these questions because people, again, like lose their minds. There, there are some articles. I'm just going to read you the titles because um, I looked it up <laughs> when we had the super academic title. I looked it up to see if there's any actual academic articles about the Wayans <laughs> brothers. And boy, are there. Really? You went on JSTOR oh, and did was, the whole... <laughs> I was like, I'm back, y'all. Dust off the day JSTOR county right here. Yeah, yeah. And I had like immediate panic attack when I logged in. <laughs> like PTSD. But one of the one of the um the pieces, one of the articles is called Whiting Up and Blacking Out, White Privilege, Race, and White Chicks. Uh, another one is called Stereotypical Strategies, Black Film Aesthetics, Spectator Positioning, and Self-Directed Stereotypes in Hollywood Shuffle and I'm gonna get you sucker. And that's by Harriet Margolis. And if I can, I'm just gonna read you a little paragraph just explaining what this article is about because I want people to both understand how the way are talked about when they're talked about in, in a critical lens but also I want people who are wavering on whether or not they should go to college to use this as a way to make that decision because this, <laughs> this is how you're going to have to talk yeah. <laughs> okay the description the synopsis Writers, directors Robert Townsend and Keenan Ivory Wayans both use a strategy of self-directed stereotypes in Hollywood Shuffle and I'm Gonna Get You Sucka. Their initial contributions to the surge of African-American feature filmmaking that came out of Hollywood in the 1980s, Wayans attacks stereotyping as process, presented by the media as a means of conceptualizing the world, whereas Townsend attacks specific individually expressed stereotypes more than the process of stereotyping itself. If using self-directed stereotypes is accepted as a valuable contribution, I'm getting tired just reading this. I I have one Ooh, sentence left mama. and I can't do it. I have one sentence mm-hmm. left and can't do it. But that is what people are talking about. Like self-directed stereotypes is a very interesting way to frame and think about the Wayans brothers. So thank you, Harriet Margolis, for that. <laughs> well, you know, and like there is always and I'm and I'm coming to this as a person who protects and preserves the legacy of film right as professionally in my career but also just as like a film lover there is something to be said sometimes of like wondering who creates the canon who creates what i mean this is probably way too intellectual for this podcast (laughs) considering we simply talk about farting sometimes but i funks and dumps <laughs> but yeah but i you know sometimes you do have to wonder and maybe i wonder this because i'm not a straight white guy or something but mm-hmm. i also you know wonder as just a human being like is commercial popularity the antithesis to art it's just a thought experiment that I have sometimes, you know. And it's worth going through that thought experiment because think of it in terms of even our own lives. Like we both know people who are so constrained by the notion of selling out that they've never done anything. And they're so constrained by the notion of making money off of something that I enjoy, that I'm good at, that's artistic, is the worst thing I could possibly do. And I just don't believe that. I don't think that that's the right way to approach you know, your your creativity. And I think that if you're making movies because you like the idea and it's funny and it happens to make you a ton of money, okay, <laughs> that's fine with me. No skin off my back. Well, and also, too, it's that thing where you're like, are we not allowed to have black success because it's not 
you know, serious or high minded yeah. or anything like that. I also want to I mean, I wanted to explore this was very interesting to me because I wanted to explore this notion of can we also just have black joy? Yeah. Nothing made me laugh harder when I was a kid than the movie that I'm going to talk about today. And nothing made my grandmother laugh more than movies like this, than seeing your culture reflected back to you in a way that is so absurd. And I feel like we're allowed to have that, too. So all of this in mind, let's do it. Yes. So I am going first this week. And my choice for the theme of The Brothers Wayans, a critical assessment of aesthetic, is a little movie from 1996. It's called Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, directed by Paris Barclay. Sean Wayans. It ain't all about the size of the boat. It's the motion in the ocean. Marlon Wayans. What you say about my mama? This film, wow. I remember when it came out. Because here's the thing. A lot of movies that we've talked about in this podcast, you and I have been either not alive or barely alive. I think certain times with like the newer stuff, especially the, la you know, the movies from last week, you know, we were fully adults. But right. this era of these two movies and the era of the Wayans family in general, I think, is like this is when we were the blood was pumping. We were we were alive. We felt it. The cerebellum was forming. Yeah. So this movie, like I said, was directed by Paris Barclay. It was produced by Keenan Ivory and it was um Written by and starring Sean and Marlon Wayans. As you mentioned, Sean and Marlon are the youngest brothers, well, the youngest of the family, right? Because yeah. Sean's the youngest and then Marlon's the second youngest, right? Um, I believe it's the other way around. I believe that oh. it's Marlon is the youngest, Sean is the second youngest. Second youngest. Um, and there have been sort of little clusters of like the family is large and everybody's extremely successful. But then like certain brothers, like obviously Keenan Ivory and Damon did stuff together in the early nineties. And then I, I think Sean and Marlon kind of started doing stuff in like the late nineties, early two thousands. And they kind of made a string of movies and um, they're both actors, but Marlon kind of started doing movies. He was doing movies outside of the family. He did Requiem for a Dream. I think everybody kind of remembers that because that movie is unforgettable role. Intense. <laughs> like, um, and he was, and then Marlon was in a lot. I mean, he was like on TV, like they both had a TV show together. Marlon actually went to the fame high school, by the way. I like, I know we talked about that in the step up episode as being, we're fascinated with people that went to uh, performing arts school and Marlon Wayans went to fame, went to LaGuardia. Marlon, can you, can you send us in a dance clip for Millie? <laughs> A little Channing Tatum style dance. <laughs> I want to see uh, Marlon Wayans, if you're listening, if you are performing in a hallway, uh, doing stretches and whatnot, please send me video of that. But yes, fame. We love. Look, I love a dance moment. I <laughs> I know that now that we've watched fame, that they make you run through the whole curriculum. So if you if Marlon, if you can play a little violin, do a little dance and sing us a little song. We know you got it. We know you got the chops. Come on this podcast and perform Hot Lunch for us, please. I would love nothing more. <laughs> so Marlon and Sean made a string of broad comedy parody films in the late 90s, early 2000s that made a lot of fucking money. Stuff like Scary Movie, Scary Movie 2, White Chicks, 
Little Man. They actually made a parody of the Step Up movies called Dance Flick from 2009. They were on a TV show together in the mid to late 90s on the WB network. So they did a lot. Also, I have to note Paris Barclay, the director of this movie, this was his first film. He primarily, I mean, he works in television. He's like pretty much directed every amazing television show that's happened in the past like 25 years. And I have to say, he was the first black and openly gay president of the Directors Guild. That's dope. That's pretty dope. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about this movie. Give give me the synopsis. What is this movie about? So in Don't Be a Menace, dot, 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 I swear to God there is a joke or sight gag literally every five seconds. (laughs) There truly is. There truly is. Basically, this movie is taking cracks at this film genre. It is a film genre, maybe not very well known, but it's called the hood film. Okay. And these are primarily American films that are featuring the stories of black characters that are living in an inner city, whether or not it's like South central Los Angeles or Detroit or Chicago or New York city, wherever, wherever, like a city that has a high African-American population and they deal with the problems or the struggles in those communities, such as violence, gangs, drugs, broken homes, racial profiling from the police, etc. And, you know, this genre actually does go back to the 70s with movies like Cooley High. And there's this movie called Across 110th Street. Maybe people didn't know what it was called, but they certainly saw a lot of it in the 90s with what I think is kind of a convergence of the popularity of gangster rap and also the new era of black filmmakers that were working in Hollywood at the time. People like John Singleton, Mario Van Peebles, who we've talked about on this podcast before, the Hughes brothers, F. Gary Gray, and tons of others, okay? And like I said, in Don't Be a Menace, there's rapid fire references, okay, to like a whole bunch of movies that were made in this era. It's stuff like Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, Juice, New Jack City, Poetic Justice, South Central, Higher Learning. Fresh. (laughs) I mean, there was a, yes, shit ton of films. In fact, in the beginning of this movie, there's a title card that says one out of every 10 black males will be forced to sit through at least one growing up in the hood movie in their lifetime. (laughs) So obviously this movie is a parody. It's using the tropes of these films for its comedy. But, you know, I also think what's interesting, and this is something that we just talked about in the intro to this, which is that. This movie kind of calls into question sort of the idea of what was being shown of black culture to white audiences, right? Because at the moment, at the moment that this was happening, right, that this movie came out, I think that like gangster rap had just kind of become huge in the early 90s, like huge, huge, huge. And I think that that was sort of the first sort of look from lots of white people, certainly younger white people. About black people's lives in an inner city. They had, if they were watching films, maybe, you know, from the 70s and 80s, that would have been different. But I think most like suburban white kids 
You know, suburban white kids are not watching Cooley High. They basically were watching MTV. And the fallacy of that and the, the, the tragedy of it is that not only was this like a singular presentation of black life, but if you're watching a film that's talking about this as a subject matter, and you're, t- you're looking at a hood film. No one's asking the audience to question how did this happen? Like how right. what are the economic structures? What are the political structures that forced and in kind of, you know, encompassed the world that made it impossible for these people, for black people to succeed? You're not yeah. you, you can sit for two hours, watch someone get shot and leave. And you're not even thinking about the repercussions of that. Yeah. So to me, you sort of have this sudden broad, I would say white acknowledgement of black people's lives mm-hmm. via this musical trend that was happening. And then you have black filmmakers who were working at this time who I think were honestly just trying to make stories of their lives and trying to make art, trying to make their movies. Yeah. And then you can kind of see where this is going. And and the thing is, is that we're sitting here, we obviously advocate for black filmmakers to make movies and, uh, and we want them to have money and resources distribution. But, you know, it's that thought experiment where you're like, okay, there's suddenly a proliferation of these certain types of films, these hood films. And, you know, you're kind of like... I mean, maybe the simple answer is that Hollywood is dumb and will drive a money train into the ground at any time. Like they were like, oh, does this make money? Let's make a hundred movies like this. We've seen that time and time again. And also that but that does speak to the gatekeeping qualities of this as well, because the reason you see all of these at once is that one movie came out that earned enough money from enough of a wide array of audiences that Hollywood was paid attention so Boys in the Hood, which was not made for white audiences, wasn't, made, but was 100% funded by white Hollywood because everyone at that point in time who was an executive was white. Like I have all these caveats like at that point in time, it's still that way. But yeah. <laughs> like that is the gatekeeping process. So this one film got through. Somebody took the chance, you know, and. Then the floodgates opened once they saw that and this has happened to to black people time and time again. Once they see that we have money to spend, it's open season. Yeah. And like and, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I kind of look at film history and you see these spikes with certain genres, with certain types of films, mm-hmm. with certain types of filmmakers. And it's just, it's interesting. And you, and you think of the historical conditions to how those things happened when in reality, I think the better model was to like, just let black people make films all the time. Right. right? And, <laughs> right. Know, like, like maybe we want to face it out and have our hood movies once every five years, let us decide. Yeah. And it's truly like the, an act of irresponsibility to kind of, you know, to do that, to take, a genre that is specific to a culture and to suck all the air out of it before it has a chance to to breathe. That's true. And I, but you know, it got to the point where obviously like the weigh-ins picked up on it. We're like, okay, there's all these tropes of these movies and these music videos that we're seeing, and we have to make a comedy that addresses this. So don't be a menace. I'm going to give a little bit of a synopsis. Um, <laughs> don't be a menace is essentially about a guy named Ashtray. Who goes, who uses the name Trey for short, who is played by Sean Wayans. Ashtray or Trey is sent to live with his father, who lives in presumably South Central Los Angeles. Now, his father is only a few years older than him. And 
that's an obvious reference and a joke to other, like I said, the other films in this genre. And there is a lot of that. Yes. So if I give you a plot point, just know it's probably taken from another one of these you know, serious hood films that were being made. This is the parody of it, obviously. Right. And his dad is played by Lamar Tate, who is the older brother of Lorenz Tate. So I just have to put that out there because it's like the Reign of King thing. I'm like, oh, it's Lorenz Tate's brother. Okay, cool. Um, so Trey is immediately thrown into this world with his family and the people that he comes across in his life, including his cousin, who is played by Marlon and his Cousin is essentially a thug character who loves guns, you know. Uh, there's this other character named Preach. He's an activist. And then there's this character, Crazy Legs, who is essentially, he was a victim of a drive-by. And he's in a wheelchair. The wheelchair has gold rims. I mean, okay. But then, like, you know, it's that the message part of the movie, which I'll get to in just a second. There's many messages, by the way. And, um, and then there's this, of course, of course, there's the love interest. Her name is Dashiki. She basically looks like Janet Jackson from poetic justice and is all, and basically the love interest in all of these films. And there's a lot of jokes about her having like seven children and, and, you know, sort of being, I think she, her, her address is like something totally ridiculous like 6969 penetration avenue i think that's her address and i'm like oh my god um and then dashiki is being sort of protected by this guy named toothpick who's this ex-con and he's really dangerous and he wants he says he wants to kill trey for dating her and eventually impregnating her so you have all these different types of characters and they're all lifted from these films from menace society boys in the hood uh new jack city like all this stuff but the best person in this movie of course is the grandma right helen martin who was pearl <laughs> on 227 she has had such a long and storied career and i'm just gonna say it this was her crowning achievement <laughs> i mean she is one of the matriarchs of black film and TV. Yes. I mean, she was in everything. She was in good times. She she actually, during this era, she was known for playing these grandma characters, right, in these films. But what's interesting about her is that she was actually like a Broadway actress at one yeah. point. Like before she got famous for, you know, being a grandma, she was she was in like Tennessee Williams plays on mm -hmm. Broadway. She did Raisin in the Sun. <laughs> like my grandparents went and saw it. Yeah, she was a founding member of the American Negro Theater in Harlem, you know, and so she's a, she's a legit actress, but, you know, she obviously people know her from her later years uh, and she is fucking so funny in this movie. She's this sassy weed smoking granny. She's like ready to fight. She's smoking these giant blunts. I mean, I'm just like. <laughs> She's breakdancing. And this, again, is part of, if we're doing this academic assessment, this is part of considering this movie as a historical text. Like, part of the ire that people have is, we don't want to perpetuate the stereotype of the weed smoke and breakdancing grannies. And I'm like, okay, but is it funny? Did you laugh? Because sometimes that's not every movie has to be Amistad. They are taking the stereotypes from these films mm -hmm. and they're showing you, like, the ridiculousness of sort of like perpetuating stereotypes. And that's why I think it's it's also like, you know, that one article title that I'd read earlier, um, I think is a big part of this, which is like you have to look at 
who and what is being made fun of. And to me, the Wayans brothers make fun of the format and they make fun of the genre more than they do individual people. Exactly. I, mean, I haven't seen every single Williams Brother movie, but I think that's usually the place that they that the that's the foundational part of what they jump off of. Right. And a critical reappraisal of these movies is not necessarily like I'm defending it to the hilt. I mean, right. there is certainly like, you know, within broad comedy, there is a tendency for homophobia and misogyny and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But for the most part, like Helen Martin is funny as an actress yes. and she should allowed to be funny and do funny shit. And, you know, I I appreciate that about her. So Completely. that's there, what I'm going to say. There's not a moment that she's on screen that is not solid gold. Super funny. And I have a nostalgia for her because I fucking love 227. Yes. And she was sassy on that show. She was always exactly. at the comebacks on that. Like it's part of her personality as an actor to kind of she's able to go there. And so I I loved it. I loved her in this movie. And there is that stereotype because, again, these things truck in the reality of how stereotypes come about. And it's usually like, you know, you're being raised by a grandparent because your parents are on drugs or got shot or whatever. And it's like every movie that you watch will have a grandma character. And there's actual like interesting moments because there's there's a couple of really great cameos in this movie. And like Antonio Fargus is in this movie, who is also in your movie. We'll talk about him later. And Keenan himself comes in as he's like this mailman, this like roving mailman that like anytime somebody drops like some serious shit in the movie, he pops up and says message because, you know, got to give the message of the film. Um, But, you know, Bernie Mac is in this movie who I fucking love Bernie Mac. And he plays officer (laughs) self-hatred, who's basically a black police officer who hates black people. And that is very that I think I'm sorry. That is an astute observation. One hundred percent. And that is not only astute, but still relevant today. And you can't tell me that a dumb person would write a movie that isn't having an intelligent thought when they write that. Exactly. And that's kind of like, I think what it comes down to for me when watching this movie. I mean, there's obviously like all these little moments that where they are questioning black stereotypes, like Vivica A. Fox, who's playing Trey's mother is basically like telling him that there are no positive female black role models in these films. You have to be pretty smart to make a movie like this, where it's like rapid fire, really nuanced Mm -hmm. references to not only just these hood films, not only to the movies that were popular during this era, but just black culture and sort of like general culture, like, you know, the Asian grocery store employees and, you know, that whole scene of like the white guy (laughs) that comes in and does the OJ gloves. I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, it's not stupid, really. Like it's really smart and astute. So I completely agree. I, yeah, I, and again, this is two different ends of, of, a, of a spectrum. Actually, it has like three or four. It's punctuated by three or four different movements and moments within the Wayans Brothers history. And I think this is kind of that midpoint before the scary movie. But, you know, after I'm going to get you, sucker. And I think that they were smart to keep making movies about how people perceived blackness. Because that is, again, how I look at it. They were making movies that capitalize on the notion of how people perceive and the assert- the absurdity of how people perceive blackness. And I think that it's it's remarkable to have raised multiple generations of performers who are able to do that. There's a there's a yeah. kind of central intelligence to that family that I think they don't get credit for. Absolutely. 
And again, not saying these movies are like, you know, should be up there with Truffaut or whatever, but who decides Truffaut is great? But I don't I think there you can have a dumb comedy be just as important to your life and your artistic development as these other films. And I think that's what we're saying. So I can't wait for you to talk about your movie this week. (laughs) So what is your movie this week? So my movie this week is I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, released in 1988, written and directed by Keenan Ivory Wayans. So I guess that's about 50 cents a rhythm, huh? Yeah, about. Let me get one. Right on. One order. One order ribs. No, 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 no. One rib. One rib. Oh, God, I love this movie. So the reason I chose this, this film is that it not only has a special place in my heart, I saw this movie when it came out when I was 11. It is foundational to how this family began. Right. There is nothing. There's no scary movie. There's no little man's. There's no don't be a menace to society when you're drinking. your Don't don't be a menace to South Central when you're drinking your juice in the hood without this movie. This is the first yeah. one. So this movie was direct, written and directed by Keenan Ivory Wayans, who also stars in it. And the synopsis of this film is that um, Keenan Ivory Wayans plays a guy called Jack Spade, who comes back home to any ghetto USA uh, after his younger brother dies from over gold. His younger brother dra- dies from being weighed down by too many gold chains. He OG'd. Um, he OG'd. <laughs> And Jack does not like the way that gold chains and its ilk is changing the community. So he decides to get revenge and he joins forces with his childhood hero, John Slade, played by Bernie Casey, to take down Mr. Big, who is the chain overlord. So already we're getting so many tropes in these films. And this, when it came out, I would say around age 11, um, I was very big on airplane and you know movies like that this is in the same vein of that right it's the same premise which is we're going to take a simple concept to an absurd level yes and it has all of the trappings of a regular old exploitation film the narrative is basically that jack is you know falling in love with his dead brother's widow mom (laughs) keeps coming to his rescue it's incredible they have really wild to me wild bits and it's not like the the joke a minute that don't be a menaces yeah Uh, but they have things like the youth gang competition which includes like how fast can you strip a car yeah Um, yeah. and like they they do have endless one-liners i will say not necessarily a joke a minute but when i was a kid this was a movie that First of all, it was stunning to me because I could sit down and watch it with my whole family and everyone laughed. I've never seen my grandma laugh at the things I laughed at before we watched this movie, you know, movies like this. But there's this one scene with Chris, a very young Chris Rock, yeah, uh, yeah, who yeah. goes up to a counter at a, at a rib joint and he's like, what can I get for 50 cents? <laughs> the guy at the counter is like nothing. He's like <laughs> he's like how much are the ribs individually? And it basically breaks down to Chris Rock asking for one rib and a cup of soda that you could put in his hand. And when I tell you that it like at dinner time when my grandma would serve pork chops, my brother and I would look at each other and say, "Just give me one rib." <laughs> like, <laughs> Or fuck a cup, just put it in my hand. Like we just fifteen cents, fifteen cents. <laughs> like it was just nonstop one liners. So they're doing in this film. It's very evident that they are 
doing a parody or kind of an elevated absurdity about black exploitation films from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And they have a lot of the actual actors in that they have like Isaac Hayes, who plays the guy at the rib place, and Jim Brown, who plays the other guy from that serves the one rib. Exactly. You know, Bernie Casey, Bernie Casey. obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Janae Dubois, who is a very oh. big. <laughs> big Speaking actress. of good times, oh I mean, my God. Love her. It was great. And then you also have Dawn Lewis, who was Jaleesa on A Different World. Uh, she was the love interest. Um, Kadeem Hardison, Dwayne oh. Wayne from A Different World. I I picked this because it was really it also, you know, this is a film that also talks about um, like Rambo was really popular at this time. And that kind of machismo of like the guy returning home from the war or going into war. And that is my favorite part is when Bernie Case is like asking Keenan Ivory to be like, aren't you like a real soldier, dude? Like, how come you're freaked out by the gunfire? And he's like, are you kidding? He's like, look at my jacket. I got he starts showing his like military jacket and the patches are for like not like he's like, oh, this one's for surfing. This is an actual medal for surfing. And I every time that that happens, it happens multiple times in the movie. I laugh so hard. It's the, it's short, so the shorthand badge is what gets me because it has a little tiny hand on it. <laughs> but it's great. It's great. And again, the forethought and the foresight of him to say, I'm not going to make a, bl- a black exploitation film. I'm going to parody them. Yeah. Instantly sets this family apart. And to me, an intelligent way, because he saw the that the quick money is not the way to go and that it's actually more destructive, I think, to black culture to continue to present these falsified notions of who black people are and these monolithic notions of who black people are. So I just thought it was very intelligent. And I would not have said that at age 11. At age 11, I would just point out all the parts that made me laugh. Particularly, uh, they they do this spoof about um, the black revolutionary headquarters and the the actor who plays Kalinga calls his own kids whitey. When that kid reads his report yes. on Lincoln, to yes. this day, lose my mind. To this day. That shit was incredible. And like, first of all, I have to say that Kalinka's wife is played by Jan Brady. Yes. Eve Plum herself. Yeah. And like those kids, when that kid read that Lincoln speech. So funny. And I think the little girl, because it was a boy, a little boy and a little girl. And they come out and they're like, you know, pristine white, like, you know, just very like, bl- like bleached white hair, like very, very white kids. And I think the little girl was in um, Jurassic Park, if what? I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that huh. was, the, I didn't look it up, but I think that was the actress that was the little girl in Jurassic Park. Or the We're going to have girl. to ask Steven about that. That's incredible. Yeah. But it is like that kind of parody and that kind of absurdity is so funny to me because, again, a real thing that black people talk about, black women in particular, and especially in the 80s, a sign of black men's success in the 80s was often having a white partner. Yeah. And it's a power differential that goes back to master and slave and is a a different podcast. Like the New York Times has to do that one. Caliphate could do a (laughs) fucking... Yeah. (laughs) Like a master slave and dating... (laughs) In the dating politics of the 80s. Um, but I remember that that's what people like my aunt was talking about it. Like 
people talked about that. So for them to pick up on it and parody that in their film was hilarious. Hilarious to me that the person who runs the Black Revolutionary Headquarters is married to the whitest of white women. (laughs) And it's not off limits. Yeah, I this movie is so it's entertaining. It's funny, but it's good. There is a moment. First of all, I have so, so much to say. I say it. I love David Allen Greer to this day. His he is so fucking funny to me. Like when he shows up in literally anything like even today, I'm like, I fucking love David Allen Greer. But him playing that newscaster is so great. He has such a great cadence to his jokes. Like he's funny to me because he's just like. I'd never seen comedy like that before where he just kept talking and you like didn't have time to stop and laugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. I adore him. I adore yeah. him. Yeah. And there's something to be said too about, you know, this is a parody of the black exploitation genre. You have the kind of heavy hitters from that era mm-hmm. and they're appearing in this movie together. And for some reason that is heartwarming to me. Like when you, when you, when they're gathering in that like warehouse and it's like Jim Brown and Isaac Hayes and Bernie Casey. And they're like, you know, they're basically the gang is getting back together again. Yes. There is something like that makes my heart do a little flutter. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's like all of the, the old actors of the yes. genre kind of coming together to make this parody of something that they were in that is being made by black people. I mean, it's just sort of like, but just the feeling of all of them in the same room. Yeah. You know, it's just, it was like so great to me, you know, it's powerful and and it's very, it's a very full circle moment, which I think is why we feel it so, so intensely. Um, Because like you said, these are people who that was their option as actors in the sixties and seventies was to exploit (laughs) the, the content of their culture. And they're now doing it in this film in a way that, kind of calls bullshit on that. And I think it's beautiful. It is very touching because I think that it's rare. And again, this is part of what the problem is, is it's very rare to see actors who came out of that genre having longevity because they were hard to hard to get parts after those movies and hard to get cast after those movies because they'd been typecast. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it, you know? Totally. What's cool, too, is that it's, it's very... Um, they're doing such good parodies. It's like meta level parodies and meta level jokes within the this film, because there's a point where Bernie Casey is walking down the street being followed by a band that's playing the Shaft theme, which is yeah, what the, yeah. like Isaac Hayes sang the Shaft theme. Yeah. <laughs> so and he's like, you got to have a backing band. That kind of shit is funny, dude. That's le- that's levels. That's a joke with levels. You need an elevator to get to each level. Exactly. And, you know, while it is a parody, it's still actually like a good movie, too. Like the romance between Don Lewis and Keenan Ivory. I'm like, oh, this is actually really sweet. Like they kind of have like a sweet thing going on here. Whereas I think with my film is like a little bit it leans a little bit more on like the rapid fire jokes and a little less on like, you know, the narrative, the actual <laughs> like the narrative part. But I think that and I honestly think that this movie is a classic and is now, I think, seen as a classic in the same way that Hollywood Shuffle is being seen. Exactly. Like there's been a critical reevaluation of the people involved in this film and like what this film was doing. And, you know, all I'm saying is that maybe we just haven't moved further down the history chain to get to a little man. Yeah. Maybe we're not there yet. But over time, I think that people have really seen this movie. I think it's kind of moved out of like whatever 
broad comedy thing it was in and it's it's an actual classic and people love it so yeah. and again like these are these are historical texts or at least they become historical texts because they are discussing pop cultural moments yes and that is always going to be something that people want to know about and learn about so it doesn't have to be the most highfalutin version of that um but i think it's I'm glad we're ending on we're ending our Black History Month theme on this because I think that it is so important to remind people and even to remind ourselves that Black joy is great and that we deserve to laugh and we deserve to laugh at ourselves and we deserve to laugh at other people and it can't be the only thing. You can't laugh your way through fucking being oppressed, but <laughs> if you can lighten the load a little bit. I think it's incredibly important to, to keep that in mind, that not everything serves a deep purpose, but some things just serve a necessary purpose. And I love that. I love that we're ending on a comedy stylings of uh, the Brothers Wayans. Well, and like, I'm curious as to what you thought of doing this this month. Like, what are your thoughts on having started with somebody like Bill Gunn, starting with somebody like Kathleen Collins and talking about their careers and then ending it with the Wayans family, like what are your thoughts about just the entire month in general, like put together with all of like Steve, the Steve McQueen episode, mm -hmm. you know, the LA rebellion, like what are your thoughts on all that? I truly loved this month and I'm truly proud of us. I think that it, what we set out to do when we wanted to do this and we said it in the first episode was to really dissect and to really discover and explore the width and the breadth and the, the you know, the, the distance that has been traveled um, for black creators to get here. But to really I think we've done a good job covering a lot of bases that can show people just in these four episodes that there is no one way to be a black creator and there is no one type of black film like you can no longer we have people have to stop doing that. Like you can't put all black film into its own genre. We've shown even here <laughs> that it is a wide and diverse spectrum that has many different high points and many different access points. So I'm really, I'm really thankful. I'm grateful. I saw things I didn't, had never seen before. Um, it just feels good. It feels really good to end <laughs> this month feeling like we set out what we wanted to do, what we wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I think it also made me appreciate you. Not that I don't appreciate you. I'd appreciate you every day, <laughs> but it made me appreciate your experience and your perspective because you don't hear people like you talking about films in these ways on a podcast. You just don't, right. which, which is why the simple act of us like doing this podcast was you know, a lot. I mean, I feel like we do, we don't hear enough from obviously like we've talked about this. We don't hear enough about black artists and black creators, um, but especially your perspective on film and just sort of like your contribution to this podcast is so important. And I'm so proud to be doing this with you. Thanks. Me too. And I'm, I'm glad that people are here to hear about everything from like your critical assessments to Carrot's shitbox. I, I think it's, I'm, we're all here for it and we love you. Thank you. I mean, look, I'm just here trying to live a full ass life, okay? Just a full <laughs> ass life. And I think that this is part of our friendship. And, and, you know, I keep saying this every few episodes, but it really is true that the part of our friendship that all, I mean, all parts are important to me, but I think that you're the only person that I can really have these conversations with in this kind of a deep way. And I feel safe doing it. Um, but you bring an intelligence to these conversations that's based in film history, um, but it's not at all 
snobbery and it's not at all inaccessible. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that because you never make me feel like an idiot for not watching something. But you also when you're ready to talk about something, you're just like, yep, here's all these things. This is awesome for these reasons. This is how I first came to this. This is why I programmed this. Like you really have a wealth of intelligence and knowledge about movies that makes me want to watch more movies. And that's what we set out to do. So when we get reviews that are like, we get reviews that really, really run the spectrum. And I love them all. <laughs> but the ones that I really love, um, the three different kinds that we get are either I love movies and this is a great podcast. I've never watched a movie in my life and I love this podcast. <laughs> or I watch movies sometimes. I'm glad that these are women and women of color. And Millie's really smart. And like, I love those reviews because I think that it's a big I'm in your corner in such a hardcore way that I just want to shout from the rooftops every day how awesome you are in every single possible venue. So this is I'm glad that we have this platform and that we're doing this together. Uh, you are so fucking kind. I don't deserve you or any of that, but I will certainly take it. Like you said at the very beginning, Black History Month is every day, right? Yes. Don't think that we're siloing off these conversations and these move these movies and these creators to this month. This is going to happen a lot more. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So, mm -hmm. you know, we will be talking about tons of other films. If you want us to do more of this type of stuff, please let us know. Definitely. Um, I obviously love themes because I'm a programmer, so I will never turn down the opportunity to do a theme. But if it was also like not your thing, let us know. But hopefully you enjoyed it. And also next week, we are 100% watching Amistad. Wait, did you just say both of our movies are Amistad next week? Yeah, no. both of our movies are Amistad. It's the Amistad <laughs> off. <laughs> Amistad off. Oh, Lord. So as we close out this episode and start into a new month, Danielle, would you be so kind as to tell the people what the movies are for next week? They're not Amistad. Oh, I will. And let me tell you, I already can't wait to record next week's episode. <laughs> Because our movies are Gleaming the Cube, 1989, and Memphis Bell, 1990. And now that I've just said that, I realize that we're like those corporations who are like African flag all through February. And then when February's over, they're like, have some Iver soap. <laughs> like, we just have chosen the lightest movies of all time for next week. Well, this was actually we're doing another fun thing, something totally different than what we've done this month where we're doing a fun thing. Yeah. So you'll have to stay tuned to figure out why these movies are so white. But let me just tell you right now. If you guess this theme, Ugh. I will be very impressed, impressed in a way that is not humanly possible. I might marry somebody if they guess the theme. <laughs> I'd be willing to, to share my wealth and my home if you guess this theme. So hit us up on our, our Instagram and Twitter. I saw pod. If you know the theme, take a wild guess. I mean, you're not going to get it. I think I'm pretty confident to say that, but take a, take a guess. We want to see you try. Or our email address is I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Come see us and hang out with us on the socials. They're great. And we love talking with you. We love you all. We hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This is 
been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Mazza. Our theme songs by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And as always, please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 